world can be hard, cruel, and ugly. Trust me, it gets worse if you're hungry and thirst. Doesn't push you from position, last place to first. Can't build a foundation without having feet in the dirt. So I put in the work, grind harder than most. I don't chase accolades of the living, I'm facing a ghost. That's what makes me the GOAT. Depending on who you ask, my brother, whatever task. Got it covered like a mask, guaranteed they can't see me at the open run. Cause I cook competitors until they look well done. Don't act like you don't know where I hail from. I had to climb up out the trenches, sit on benches till my time had come. Don't be mad at the player, be mad at the game. Sneak this in the hating, that's a flag on the play. Me falling off, huh? That'll be the day I'm like, bolt in the race, leave the track, flam bay, it's the open run. about Tina Turner, the legend, the icon, the first rock star who just so happened to be female. Like, if you think about what she did in the 50s and 60s with, or actually the 60s and 70s, whatever the case might be, with Ike Wister Turner. It's hard to imagine unless you talk about Sister Rosetta Tharp, guitarist, do the history, it's black history, a day anyway. Look her up, it's real. But think about the movie about Tina Turner, what's love got to do with it? Incredible performances by the lovely and effervescent Angela Bassett, who gets better as she gets older, like she ages in reverse. And probably be able to say that about my guest today, my very special guest today, great friend of mine. I appreciate so much for coming on today. But also the acting of Lawrence Fishburne as Ike Turner. And this, her theme song, the song that was the backdrop for the movie is What's Love Got to Do With It? And I think about the lyrics to that song. What's love got to do, got to do, got to do with it? Who needs a heart when a heart can be broken? And calling love a second-hand emotion. Odd that I talk about this on Valentine's Day as I record in advance of releasing the podcast. I don't think so. I never got married. I don't know if marriage is in the bag for everyone. I don't know if they're, everyone's built for it. I've never been married. Thought about it a couple of times couple different occasions just never gotten there and in the event that I do I'd like not to be at the point where I question whether I have the capacity to truly love someone like I think I know and you should know but love is a feeling right it's not knowledge based maybe that is the eternal struggle between the heart and the mind because the mind knows no feeling and the heart knows no logic I don't know so allow me to reintroduce myself. This is The Open Run with Will Strickland. That would be me. The Open Run with Will Strickland is brought to you by the fine folks at Press. We are press.net. I can be found across these rough interweb streets at W underscore Strickland and the number one on Twitter. Will Strickland and the number one on IG and across all streaming platforms where podcasts can be found. Sometimes in life, the hardest thing to do is nothing. Think about it. This is not applicable to Justin Trudeau or the Pork Chop Squad at these Blue Trucks Clan protests at the Ambassador Bridge between the border of Detroit and Windsor, Ontario, Canada, or in the nation's capital of Ottawa, which I think some of these cops on the Pork Chop Squad are complicit. Alas, we're here for love. But when I say sometimes the hardest thing to do is nothing, sometimes your actions can get you in trouble. And that staying silent is staying complicit. Sometimes the hardest thing to do is nothing. 
I noted in a conversation recently that there was a metric that stated that the best time to send an email to someone is between 9 a.m. and 11 a.m., no matter what time zone you're in, on Thursdays, because they get read the most then. I need to find out where that metric came from, to be honest with you. And so I do a lot of business on Thursday, and I think about how, okay, maybe a lot of people are checking out on Friday. And it said that if you want someone not to read your email, send it out on Friday. If you So bad press releases, anything that happens bad, you send it out on Friday, so people have a weekend to ignore it, and then digest it on Monday, whether they want to or not. I get it. I record on Mondays. I release the podcast on Tuesdays. Sometimes I get bad news over the weekends. Sometimes I don't. And with my guests coming up this week, almost, you know, you try to give people space and leeway. And I, I want to let her know that I respected her time and space. And um, had to reach out to her this weekend to make sure that we were good for the podcast. She is A1 credit with me always. She's like, look, man, I'm moving around. I'm busy, too. And when did I send that email? I'm almost certain I sent it on a Friday. But I have this thing called stick to can be applied to one Kevin Wesley Love who stayed in Cleveland after the departure of the leading scorer in NBA history, the hashtag he who shan't be named. And I'm combining regular season points and playoff points because, you know, if you say it's quote unquote unofficial. Let's say it was, it's, he hasn't broken the, the regular season record because, you know, regular season means so much to people today unless only but only when you're talking about certain people. Got it. But Kevin Love stayed there in Cleveland. I'm going to talk about this a little bit with my guest who comes on later on today. And stuck it out. Didn't want to be bought out. Was one of the leading forces and leading voices on mental health issues for these athletes. So so what they make hundreds of millions of dollars. They still face real life situations. I get it. Money can't buy you peace of mind all the time. Give you some comfort, no doubt. But there's anxiety and a pressure to achieve at the highest levels. This is what he bought on to. He wants to just figure out how to balance between being a professional athlete and being a human being. Nothing wrong with that. stick to It's not even a real word. Coaches use it all the time. And recently, as a celebration of the 75th anniversary of the National Basketball Association, the NBA released the top 15 coaches in league history. There have been a lot of coaches in the NBA. And this list... What's love got to do with it? Whether you love them or not. Whether they won a championship or not. Well, I guess we'll figure that out. And I want to run down this list and get your thoughts on it. And if you agree or disagree, please let me know. You can reach me through my socials. I just told you what they were. So the first coach, Mr. Happy Feet, Larry Brown, who's the only man to still have won an NCAA championship and an NBA championship, winning with the Detroit Pistons, in 2004, I know that's going to cause some anxiety to my guest coming on later on today. She's a big Lakers fan. Eric Spolstra, two-time NBA champion with the Miami Heat. Still one of the top coaches in the league. I've been championing his cause for a long time because it takes a lot to manage those personalities for someone who started his career as the video edit guy for the team. But he's always been around basketball. And he was on the court. When the late Eric Hank Gathers passed away during the West Coast Conference basketball game way back in 1990. So Eric Spolster's on that list. His mentor, Dr. Jack Ramsey, former coach of the Buffalo Braves in the 70s and also the Portland Trailblazers. So he coached two expansion teams in the 70s. That's saying something. He 
took that one expansion team, the Portland Trailblazers, to 1977 NBA championship, defeating new ABA convert Julius Winfall Irvin II and the ultra-talented, ultra-dysfunctional Philadelphia 76ers. Don Nelson, who won most games in NBA history, but never won a championship, at least as a coach. Never even made it the championship series as a coach. But he is a guy that you can definitely say is the progenitor of the small ball era, created the idea of the point forward through Paul Pressey, who played for him in Milwaukee. All kinds of crazy lineups that he would run. He had Manute Bowl running a point, shooting three-pointers when he was in Golden State. And he had run TMC. That would be Tim Hardaway, Mitch Richmond, and Chris Mullen. Run TMC out in the Bay. Yay, yay. Glenn Rivers. I cannot call him that other name, especially because he's coaching in Philadelphia. That's exclusive to the man I just named a second ago, Julius Winfield Irvin II. But Glenn Rivers, he of two championship series, one championship win over the Lakers when he was in Boston with the Gap Band or the PGA Tour, whether you call him Pierce Garnett Allen, Garnett Allen, Pierce, Gap Band, PGA Tour, whatever you want. That's what I was calling him back in 2008. So always with the nomenclature for sure. Lenny Wilkins, who was one of the few player coaches in the NBA. We coached at Portland and Seattle, but ended up winning the title in 1979. The first NBA Finals that I actually truly watched all the way on tape delay at 11.35 Eastern after late local news. Even though they showed the score already, I tried to ignore it and try to stay up late enough to watch the games. Lenny Wilkins on that list. Jerry Sloan, guy who went to the Finals twice in a row, tough as a $2 stake as a player in Chicago. He's basically, I, could, I don't want to call him that. I was going to give Alex Caruso crazy stats, but there's a lot of Jerry Sloan in the way that Alex Caruso plays there in Chicago, when he plays. Red Holzman, two-time NBA champion with the New York Knickerbockers. 1970-1973, Knicks fans probably don't even know his name, but they know those championships. They're still chasing them almost 50 years later. Casey Jones, one of the few men in the history of basketball to win NCAA titles as a player, Olympic gold medal as a player, multiple NBA championships as a player, and then multiple NBA championships as a coach, primarily in Boston for the Celtics. He coached a couple of different other places. Casey Jones, the coach of the Washington Bullets when they went to the finals in 1975 against Al Adels, two black head coaches facing off in the NBA finals. I think that was the first time that ever happened. That was in 1975 between the Golden State Warriors and the Washington Bullets, you now know them as Washington Wizards. Steve Kerr, three-time champion, Golden State. You know the teams he's had. He's on that list. Love it or hate it, he's still there. The only coach on this list who did not play basketball at all, ever, Chuck Daly, author of the bad boy teams. He took those teams from high-scoring, fast-break teams who could score a lot of points but not win a lot of games in the early to mid-80s when he took over the job and transform them into a defensive juggernaut. Some people say it's dirty. The bad boys defeated some of the best teams in NBA history and won titles going through Michael Jeffrey Jordan, Larry Joe Bird, and Irvin Magic Johnson, as well as the artist formerly known as Ferdinand Lewis Alcindor Jr. Chuck Daly's on that list. The OG of OGs, Red Auerbach. Nine NBA titles, Red Auerbach. is not subject to debate. And he's also the first man to say, hey, look, my players are black. When I retire, why shouldn't my best player be the coach? 
He made it possible for the first black person to become a head coach in the NBA, who also still was an active player in the greatest winner in team sports history, William Felton Russell, who won two championships in three years after taking over for Red Auerbach. Maybe he should be on this list too, but he's not. The Gordon Gecko, greed is good, man. Patrick James Riley, five NBA championships with LA and Miami. Pat Riley, resume impeccable. Greg Popovich, San Antonio, small market, even though it's a million people in plus in San Antonio. It's still small market because it's not a big media market. It's a lot of people down there. But they are the blueprint for how you run professional sports franchise. Once they were absorbed into the NBA from the ABA, and starting with the arrival of the great Timothy Theodore Duncan, for 20 years plus, this has been a model franchise. Greg Popovich at the center of it all. And of course, the man with 13 championships, more than Bill Russell, but not because they were as a coach or a player, but as both. 11 as a coach and two under Red Holtzman when he was playing for the Knicks back in the 70s. Phil Jackson rounds out this list. I think that sometimes we forget because we have recency bias. The Johnny Kunla, the coach of the Minneapolis Lakers, the first NBA dynasty to win five championships. He's not on this list. Alex Hanum, coach of the Philadelphia 76ers slash Warriors back in the day. In the 1966-67 season, coached what was considered at the time the greatest team to ever play basketball. Will Chamberlain and those guys breaking the Celtics consecutive championship losing strike. What was a monster? Luke Jackson, Chet Walker, Billy Cunningham, Matt Gukas, all those guys on that team. Philly fans should love this part. But guess what? In the words of that immortal Negro poet, Steveland Hardaway, Jerkins Morris, love is in need of love today. So send your love right away and come back for more. On the other side of this, on the open run with Will Strickland. You know about Football 21, right? That Barbito and I do? No, but what? I need to know. What is that? So, you, you know got, what 21 is, right? I got multiple jobs I, and two kids. Like, I can't look, know about everything. Look, look at my Twitter or look at my Instagram for you. I, I tag you in it. Okay. So, look at that and now. tell me what it says. What does it say? Read that to me. It says, about to get percolating on this, in this dancery <laughs> on the Oprah Run. Uh, blowing kisses and in the rice range featuring my sister and me. Aw, media superhero. You're sweet. Very nice. Super excited. So we are ready. That's what I'm saying. I, I got you. I got you. And I appreciate you get, having me. So let's get it popping. I got my key light on. I'm, I'm trying to, you know. You got it. You know what COVID, you're COVID you're, lessons. You're a pro. Come on now. <laughs> Here we go. Back. Give me more of what you asked for. It's the open run with Will Strickland in conversation with my superhero. My sister, Tambisa Mshaka, before we get it started and get it popping, we were talking, I guess, off air about how serendipitous the name of this episode is to your... My whole brand, my whole, IG, you know, yeah, your IG, my passion your point energy, right? Lip game. Well, so, I'm like, awesome. so it's called Blowing Kisses in the Rice Rain. For those who don't know, that is a J Electronica uh, lyric, you know, and I thought that it was apropos for recording on this day at what they call in the hood valentine's day <laughs> right 
Word is born. <sighs> but thank you for coming on to me, sir. Um, Thank you for having me, Will. It's good to see you. I mean, you know, I don't know if these folks realize how far we go back. You know, you can't see it on our faces, but you go back I mean, a long, long way. Like fat crayons and car seats. We go, we go, right. We go back mm -hmm. to, you know, Wu-Tang shout outs on, on debut singles. Oh, we're about to get there with that for sure. But <laughs> since, since you're at it already, why don't you run your resume and let us know who you are and where you come from? Because I see you rocking the blue and, or, and the, the yellow. Oh, okay, so let's talk know. about it. Let's talk about it. I am from the West Coast, okay? West We're Side. Right? That's it. Um, born and raised in LA, grew up in Inglewood and Pasadena. So Inglewood. both of those cities got shout outs in California love. So be clear. Um, <laughs> I came up in the Bay in my career as an entertainment executive. Hey, hey. Yes. So shout out to Oakland. I am an alumna of Mills College and started my career, cut my teeth in the business in the Bay. So I claim SoCal and NoCal, so um, it's all good. Just want to um, run it down quickly because this is my 30th year in entertainment, so I've done a lot of things. Um, started in 1992, working in touring and booking, and then segued into hip-hop journalism as the rap editor for Gavin, the first Black person, the first woman, the youngest person to run the rap charts at Gavin from 1993 to 1998. What is so Gavin? Gavin is was basically like Billboard. It was a music trade magazine that came out weekly, and we had hip-hop charts, and I ran those charts for over 300 college community and eventually um, crossover stations across the country. You used to report to Gavin way back in the day. So we broke a lot of artists during that time, uh, some on covers and some with exclusive stories from Bone Thugs and Harmony, Scarface is a solo artist, D'Angelo, Common, Lady of Rage. They all got their first trade covers from me. Also helped to break the roots and to sort of continue what my predecessor, Kelly Wu, began with Wu-Tang Clan. So uh, after that, I went on to Sony Music where I was the senior advertising copy copywriter and wrote over a hundred black music campaigns in the span of about six years. The first campaign that I wrote was Miseducation of Lauren Hill. And I think just, you know, uh, Diamond Certified. Yes. Right. It's like, shout it's out, like. shout out, shout out to Lauren Hill, including eight campaigns for Nas, four for Will Smith, several for the Wu-Tang collectives that were a part of Sony Music, wrote the Supreme Clientele campaign for Ghost, Bulletproof Wallets, uh, Yina Yina, um, the W, Iron Flag for Wu-Tang Clan, wrote 50's first album campaign, Power of the Dollar. And I think probably my last campaign might have been Street's Disciple for Nas. Um, but in between, yeah. there was Beyonce, Destiny's Child, Jill Scott, Maxwell, Jermaine Dupri, and so many others. So, um, And Mary Mary, who did an amazing job last night before the Super Bowl. So did that for six years. 2004 comes along and I transitioned because while I was at Sony, I became a voiceover actor. And then began the process of turning into talent, you know, out out front, so to speak. I mean, still not seen very much, but definitely heard. And so over the course of that time have been the network voice for various cable networks, including the Smithsonian Channel and Lifetime and Oxygen, a voice for NBC Sports for the Tokyo Olympics last summer, and was also the voice of the WNBA and the New York Liberty um, at different points in my career. I got to voice their 20th season for MSG Network. So I'm a sports chick. You know that. I love basketball. Lifelong Lakers fan. 
And um, it's good to be here. Somewhere in there, I also wrote a book about women in the entertainment business called mm. Put Your Dreams First, Handle Your Entertainment Business. And that is probably why you asked me to come on, because it's the definitive book about women, business, and entertainment. Um, well, and that was, that's uh, not the only reason I had you on. I was <laughs> that, like, if I call you, it's like, is she practicing her voice over stuff with the mellow dulcet tones? Now, that's just you. That's how you carry it. And I love that. But we've always had great energy. I mean, you talked about Gavin. You talked about Kelly, Brian Sampson, all those guys that were there. Mm -hmm, I mean, shout like, out to the crew. Oh, I hope Jackie. Yep. Days all day. And that was a vibe back then. Like, I had almost moved out to the Bay. Take, I was going to take a job at Virgin Records after coming out to San Francisco. Oh. So for Gavin, I was like, I love, I, it was on my calendar every year. We created something really, really powerful with the Gavin Seminar because it gave artists a place to really, this was the original social network where, where mm -hmm. the trade magazines and the communication that um, radio stations had with labels and managers and handlers through the seminar. You know, artists got discovered there. People were able to talk about the state of the business and the showcases helped emerging talent, you know, come to the fore. So it was it was definitely a vibe. The energy there was unmatched. And there were a lot of conventions and seminars happening during that era. But Gavin felt special because it was really who was most important in the industry with respect to hip hop, mm. um, you know, coming together uh, at those confabs and really having serious industry conversations. So I almost uh, got shot out there once. Where? So I'm riding around with Eric Skinner. Shouts out to Skinner. <laughs> yes, Eric Skinner. I didn't know that he couldn't drive. Oh. I don't know how he got a license. I don't know how he got the car. What? He had, he had a chair. Listen, the words, Eric Skinner could get anything. That's why that yeah. that's why he was that guy for job. Right. So I'm in the, in the words of Trevor George Smith Jr. in the Cherry Pathfinder. Talking about Buster Rhymes. Right, right. <laughs> Riding around San Francisco with all those hills, he can't drive. But we're flying and we're listening to this cassette tape, cassette of Nasir Bean Oludara Jones. Yes, yes. I ironically actually met at Gavin. It was DJ Polo and G Rap mm -hmm. introduced me to Nasir. Oh, we got crazy with them before, and I. Before I even had the job, that's how I met Nas. Right? And I think he was like 17, 18. And then. Right. I wound up writing his campaigns, but like a whole job later. Like, of course, I did stuff for, you know, for Nas, for Gavin, reviewing records and all of that. Right. But like to eventually write eight album campaigns with him, like that was a career highlight and a dream come true because, you know, I just I so appreciate his artistry. And as much as I'm a fan of and birthday twin with Jay-Z, like mm -hmm. I was in the trenches because I wrote the campaign for Stillmatic. So I was there as we were going right. through that whole ether battles. So, yeah, Connected that's how Gavin was. You would just pull up and then G-Rap and Polo would just be in the lobby at the St. Francis and they'd be like, hey, T, you should meet this guy. His name is Nas. Is that Market, Market Street? Um, no, I somewhere Market, like that. Market. I can't remember exactly yeah. where the St. Francis was, but, but Union um, Square area of San Francisco. We are in the lobby. You, you talked about that. I still have that picture where they're posing with these artists I was managing from the time in Houston. So it's, it's Onyx that's there. Oh, G-Rap, Polo, in the, the team, wow. you know, straight up, let's dead, right? And the fact that, again, getting back to almost getting shot. So we're riding around and we pull up in front of California Pizza Kitchen mm -hmm. Hotel. In front of that hotel is Ski from Original Flavor, a, a oh, bunch of goons man. with them. 
And this this artist by the name that you just mentioned, the artist formerly known as Sean Corey Carter. <laughs> you and these government names. Is this what you do oh, every I'm podcast to drop governments? <laughs> yeah, I'm not snitching oh though. I'm not snitching. I'm not snitching. That's hilarious. You know, I love that. So we pull up and I hop out because I had gotten this like demo of Jay-Z's that eventually ends up, Patrick Moxie ends up signing him to Payday Records. Mm -hmm. That's right. My, my first listen. review for Jay was in my lifetime. My lifetime, right? And that was, I don't know if that was, I don't know if they were at priority for distribution at that point. You're I, talking about way before that, the Payday, payday demo. The payday yeah. demo. This is yeah. before Payday got the demo. Mm, I, okay. I, and I pulled up and I jump out of the car and I see everybody, like, whoa, this ain't it. This ain't it. I'm just trying to say, my man, your demo is crazy. I didn't know who he was. My man, I love your demo. Well, you can't just screech up to the curb and jump well, that's out. Eric. Okay. That's Eric Driver. Eric, right. He got you looking crazy. Yeah, yeah I did. <laughs> kind of nuts. It's just funny how this is so much a part of our foundation. And you talked about Wu-Tang and our connections there. And just the fact that eventually, once you left the West and we became neighbors, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In New Jersey. Yes, that's right. My, right? my my first landing pad was Jersey City. That's right. Before wow. I moved into New York proper. Yeah. So we, well, we go what's back. interesting about the whole like women in hip hop thing, right? And it kind of dovetails to what I'm sure we're going to talk about later. Absolutely. Is that people don't normalize women in hip hop as experts, as being authorities within the industry, within the genre, as being game changing executives within the format. You know there's so much that has only taken place because women and particularly black women, women of color actually ushered it through, right? Talk about Within it. Within hip hop. And so a lot of people are shocked when, you know, I, you know, IG is like the land of receipts, right? Especially for throwback <laughs> Thursday or whatever. So when I throw up posts of, you know, campaigns that I've written or pictures with people, you know, artists that I've worked with, they're just like, what? It, to the point where Method Man actually had to jump in on a troll and stop him from, you know, trying to test me about about my connection to Wu-Tang Clan, it shouldn't take that. Because mm. women have been integral to hip hop since the beginning. If it wasn't for Cindy Campbell, Cool Herc wouldn't have had a party to, to, to 100%. DJ. So, you know, let's talk about that. So as, as hip hop turns 50 years old next year, we got to normalize the presence of women within hip hop as more than eye candy or something to be objectified or enjoyed or, you know, as used for entertainment. And I think that that gets to this idea of talking Talking about women's appearance and policing their bodies and their attire, you know, because we now are being forced to reckon with women as holders of power within sport and women who are out front as themselves in sports and not, you know, on someone else's terms for the male gaze. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, my whole thing has been we need to normalize the presence of women in all fields across the board because we've always been there. But it's like what we talk about in terms of social media and the isms in general. Right. Like racism, you know, um, uh, extrajudicial police murder. All of these things have been happening, but now we can see it and we can call it out. And that's mm -hmm. what's happening now is like women have always been there, but now we can actually see them and, you know, we can elevate them and allow them to be seen and to be present on their terms. Well, we are in conversation with Timbisa Mshaka, and 
I noticed you you said something about the lower third blocking some of you know. Yeah. So shout out to my sweatshirt. It's "Don't Waste Your Pretty" from Demetri L. Lucas's merch line. Hey D, that is one of my favorite commentators, authors, screenwriters. Um, she's just a brilliant. Uh, mind within entertainment and she often talks about relationships and the intersections between um, you know body politics appearance uh, gender roles etc and so you know don't waste your pretty is really a nod to this conversation that we're having Um, you know one of the things you asked me to talk about was coach carter and her pink pants Mm. and as far as i'm concerned she's just flexing her pretty she's not wasting it you know that's not what she right hair flip that's not what she is focused on. She's there to coach, mm. right? But everyone else wants to make the most important topic what she's wearing, and that's well, not the well, point. Well, let's, let's drill down on that a little bit. Let's drill down on that mm-hmm. a little bit because there are power dynamics at play, um, not only from a female standpoint, but in very, very drilled down, a black female standpoint, a black female in a power position, in a position that traditionally they have not been in. Right. And so now with the advent of social media, the ability to speak your truth and to be who you are in the most authentic way, someone will come in and have a, a conversation. There are a bunch of Facebook and Twitter university. Uh, <laughs> Not Twitter university. <laughs> you know, you, you got IG tech. They'll tell you, you know, they'll, the leading epidemiologist will say this is What's happening? A guy who works at a burger bar is like bullshit. Mm-hmm. No dog. Mm-hmm. You went to school for this. You're going to tell me you, with all your conspiracy theories. So it gives us a space where people can relay their emotions and opinions on stuff they're not educated on, and it takes someone like Sidney Carter to say, "This is who I am," and then to have the support of those people saying, "Why are you commenting on what she's wearing?" That's her being her most authentic self. Why does it bother you? Why does it offend you so much? You talk about some of those things. Okay. And also, no one has these conversations around Clyde Frazier and his attire, which is very Craig fabulous. Sager. Craig Sager. Or Craig Sager. You know, it, it was always celebrated. Like, what are they wearing today? Oh, they're right. so fly. But there was never any question about whether it was appropriate or whether it was unprofessional. Right. So, again, this is a double standard that is a function of sexism, point mm-hmm. blank. Right. And if we weren't so programmed to think about women and their external presentation first, it would be less of an issue, less of a problem. And this is why, again, we got to level the playing field, you know, celebrate yeah. Cindy Carter, Cindy Carter for what she has on, but mm-hmm. respect who she is and what she's doing on the court. Absolutely. And I think what I don't want to do is make this a comparison between women of color, black women in particular, and white women or whatever the case might be, because I think the standard might be different if, say, someone who was not a person of color, who wore things of this nature, that they were expressing themselves openly and freely, and that that would be celebrated, perhaps. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, the intersection hair splitting gets interesting because the way sexism operates, women as a baseline are objectified. And, mm-hmm. and the posture is that they're there for the male gaze and for male enjoyment, entertainment, you know, exploitation, et cetera. So I, I would push back slightly on that. 
and say mm -hmm. that, you know, I'm sure that there are white women everywhere who are being discounted, certainly underpaid, and mm -hmm. who are being, um, you know, objectified in these spaces. You know, sometimes when I look at some of the sportscasters, they're, they're wearing something that's fitting or, you know, they're wearing something that accentuates their body. And I wonder, well, is that a function of what what they want to have on do they have it in their contract that they get to approve their wardrobe or is it that they don't get to wear what they want because they're the eye candy for being the one woman as part of you know these um these broadcasts where the men have on suits or you know v-neck sweater and a top and and whatever you know they're wearing um attire that isn't about the body but is about you know how they look right so i think that the objectification is is really focused in gender and I think that perhaps white women may experience a different kind of backlash or negative impact, but they certainly experience it. And, and I think that there's more policing that goes on when it comes to black women. You know, we've seen this with, Serena I can't Williams. remember her name right now, but the, the, um, the sister who used to be on the field in football, you know, there was always hair gate with her, like what's going oh. on with her hair. Pam Oliver, is that her name? Pam Oliver, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, so there was that, right? And now, you know, now we're arguing about her pants, uh, you know, Coach Carter's pants. And I think that there's just there's there's more there's more derision around it, right? Like mm -hmm. it's it's inappropriate and it's ugly and it's unattractive. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I think happens less when it comes to white women. Yes. Um, because what what's underneath that is that blackness is not beautiful. Mm -hmm. And we know that that's a recurring theme within racism across the board, but particularly, you know, that, that stings a little bit more sharply when we're talking about, um, you know, black women and, you know, it goes across sports, Gabby Douglas, Simone mm -hmm. Biles, Serena Williams, right. All about sort of the physicality of the body and the athleticism and, and then the hair and the sparkles and the nails. Remember Flojo, right. Mm -hmm. um, Shakari Richardson, there was always something like, we just can't just be. We can't just be who we are and do what we do and be great. Y'all always got to have something to say about it. It's inappropriate for you to even be talking about it, right? Mm -hmm. Like, let's focus on the statistics, performance, and the wins, and the GOAT status when we're talking about, you know, Biles and Williams, right? So, like, it's a distraction, Will. That's it what, that's it, what it becomes is that ultimately we're talking about pink pants when we should really be talking about gender equity, pay equity. We should really be talking about, you know, the same level of um, treatment for women athletes that, you know, men athletes receive. Um, you know, we look at the, the U.S. women's and men's soccer teams, you know, that whole documentary, um, LFG, so enlightening in terms of like what the women's team was experiencing vis-a-vis -vis what the men's team was earning and getting even though they were losing consistently right. they were getting paid to lose right. <laughs> so you know like it's a distraction to keep us from focusing on changing the way that these leagues work the way that legislation works and the way that women are treated you know across the board as owners as talent, uh, as anchors, etc. Well, you look at the NBA, if you had to make a comparison between any of the major professional leagues in North America, it's probably the most progressive league. They've had female referees longer than anyone else to the degree that now it's not even a special thing when they're announcing or when it's they're normalized. It's normalized. It's totally that's it. That's the goal. Normalization. They talked about a game between Golden State and Utah having an all-female cast. I'm talking about from production on up, mm -hmm. you know, so that was a, a great thing. Canada had already done that 
last year. Right. And multiple women of color involved that. Lisa Salters was on the sideline for the one last Wednesday for ESPN. But in Canada on TSN, you had multiple women of color in the lead for that. So Megan the Peak and Kia Nurse from the mm-hmm. Phoenix Mercury, mm-hmm. Kayla Gray, who's uh, an anchor there at TSN. Right. They were part of that presentation from the beginning to the end. And I think that when we get to the point where we're not worried about that, if you can call the game, Doris Burke's one of the best color commentators in the game, male, female, or however you gender identify. And the fact that we mm-hmm. spend so much time seeing on that, it's like when we work in the music industry and they say, when you say rappers and you say female rapper, well, you don't say male rapper when you talk about Jay-Z. Exactly. Exactly. So why are we saying, well, he's a female commentator? No, she's one of the best. She's a commentator. Right. I mean, when we talk about astronauts, they don't say Mae Jemison, woman astronaut. She's an astronaut. Right. Right. Exactly. I mean, I think I think a lot about what Jamel Hill experienced and, Mm -hmm. you know, how she was vilified for saying what there was to say in the moment about 45 and probably some other things that bristled, you know, the brass there. And that, of course, because she was already a made woman in my mind, she was going to be fine and rebound and go on to do, you know, more and better great things. But commentators like her and Kelly Carter, like, you know, we we got to normalize this, right? And mm-hmm. then not single them out when they're off the cuff, when they're right about something, but you don't like the opinion, you know, because men have been, you know, tuning from the hip and saying all kind of wild outlandish stuff for forever, may or may not get a slap on the wrist and continue to keep their jobs. What? So, they get to fail up. Maybe yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. White male, they white males get to fail up. Joe Rogan's not gonna 45 do, failed up. You see what I'm saying? There's so in that, and even though you want me to push back a little bit on that, I think it's important to note again, not to try and divide, do a divide and conquer type deal. But no, to be but aware, the intersectionality piece is important to talk about. So you know, I hear you. And and I just want people to understand that. Some people, and I think Chris Rock said this once, you know what we want to do as black people in general in North America? Have the right to suck at something and be okay. Right. To just right. bad. We want, we want access to mediocrity like as a thing that 100%. we can just have and be and do, right? <laughs> not that, my we, way to not that we strive for that, but we just want it available to us. Right, so you can fail. Because and having to be excellent all the time is exhausting and it's it's a double standard that you well, know is really not sustainable. You have to be twice as good to get half as much. Like you said, it's exhausting. And mm-hmm. when you look at some of your contemporaries or some people who inspired you to do all the things that you are doing with your voice, literally and figuratively, and through media, if you had to name a starting five. Oh my God. All time. Curveball, here we go. Black media or black women in media, mm. by position, who would that be and why? A starting five? Oh, don't yeah, put that on. Maybe top five. Uh. Just, when I say starting five, they're just playing positions. They don't have to be any order. Okay, because I'm like, how far are we taking this basketball analogy? Because I, I wasn't ready for all that. I mean, you know, like, who would be my power forward, my starting guy, my center? Like, it's too much. This is us working together. Um. <laughs> dream work. So can we work that out? Okay, so top five women in me- black women in media. Whoo, boy. Well, this kind of has a sports tenor to it, so I. Well, it doesn't have to necessarily be no, sports. No, but I'm saying, like, it what I, it brings up for me is Jane Kennedy, who groundbreaker, ground. Who, yes, who 
just, you know, my father, may he rest, bit heavy into sports. So we used to watch it all the time. Mm-hmm. So to be able to see Jane Kennedy talking about sports, like NFL today, as, back in the 70s, yeah, as, as a kid, like that was, yeah, right. So Jane Kennedy, like first off and foremost, right? Um, of she was taught, can we make her our center? Can we make her the same? Yeah, 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 yeah. Sure, why not? Um, and then I have to go to. I'm going to sort of leapfrog over decades, right? But then I also have to go to Queen Latifah, who you know was also a basketball player, but was huge for me in hip hop because she represented black womanhood and royalty in a way that you know the mainstream could connect with she also didn't compromise herself and she was completely unapologetic about her size about her voice and about you know her creative choices and now she's a media mogul so i have to give it up to queen latifah i have the gold plaque for black rain you know she was the first uh woman mc i know we still say these things (laughs) first woman mc to achieve gold status with an album mc light was the first to do it with a single for roughneck shout out to light but um yeah queen latifah's number two so Um, let's 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 make Wait, I'm gonna because I want to. Oh, give okay, her, you're her... giving me positions. Okay, so what is what so, is what is Dana Owens? Shout out the, to the government. What is she getting? <laughs> the artist formerly known as Dana Elaine Owens, <laughs> my ex boss at Flavor Unit, my Yo. basketball partner at Flavor Unit, is the power forward, no doubt. Okay, she's the equalizer. She's, <laughs> Hello, she's and let so, me just say that. I am, I'm so excited for her. She's nominated for the Equalizer for the NAACP Image Awards. You know, she's incredible. Like I told somebody the other day, so she is one of the few people in the history of everything or age. The history of everything. <laughs> was nominated for an Emmy, a Grammy. An Oscar. She's on that EGOT mode. Yeah. She, she had two daytime talk shows. She had a groundbreaking sitcom that was copied by another network. Uh, right. Shout out to Living Single and Big Les, who danced on the open for you, Living you Single. Gotta give it up. And Queen also, Latifah has been killing the game quietly for so long. I am like, sure. yes, she's on my, on my starting the class, five. The class, I teach, the class I teach right now on hip hop culture is called UNITY, why hip hop culture is the world's culture. Mm. Paying homage to the woman who, like, we talked over, she's walking her dog, and we started talking about, like, yo, I'm trying to flip Flavor Union into a label, I, and I started working there, okay? So this is, she was the one who told me about moving to New Jersey, mm-hmm, okay? But to be clear on her, I said, you realize, and I talk about her in class all the time, you realize that she is the all-American girl? And they're like, what? I said, yeah, because whatever your preconceived notion of the American beauty was tell me how many women in media at all can sell you Maybelline and Pizza Hut at the same time or Domino's or whatever pizza she was selling and you believe her in both areas yeah. like Kate and- Moss no disrespect to Kate Moss she can't sell me pizza I don't believe she eats pizza right I believe Queen Latifah eats a pizza and she, when she wants to get glammed up she'll get nice for that too right that's the power of being comfortable in her own skin and being who she is mm-hmm. and I love that about her so she's all yeah. powerful. So Queen Latifah, okay. Uh, now we can't have a conversation about black women in media without talking about Oprah Winfrey. So Oprah is, she's on the starting five just cause you know, she probably owns the team. She probably owns the stadium. But, so, if, she, but if she was a player, she would, she would probably be um, a shooting guard. Everything, everything, everything that she hits, 
<laughs> Everything that she drops is hidden. And listen, that doesn't mean that there aren't missteps or that there there aren't shots that she doesn't make. But she always finds a way to to stay hot, to stay consistent, and to turn whatever isn't working around. Like she, I mean, who else? It's like, yeah, I'm gonna have a magazine and I'm gonna be on the cover every month. Every month. Every month. Like, shout out to me every month. Cause it's mm-hmm. oh, the Oprah magazine. So why would you yeah. why would you need to see anybody else on the cover right. this month? She, so Oprah, period, Black Women Media. I mean, she does everything. She she's she owns the network. She does on camera work. She does voiceover work. She's a pitch woman. She's an executive producer. She has she has a studio. She does everything. Are you describing you or Oprah? I listen. She's a, a huge inspiration to me. Absolutely, you know, hope to meet her one day. But yeah, she's fantastic. That Golden Globe speech that she gave, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I was moved to tears by that speech. And I have to say that, of course, everybody wanted her to quote unquote run for president afterward. And I did an op-ed in Poised Magazine. Shout out to um, Audrey Washington and Chrissy Murray. And I was like, Oprah's not the help. She ain't here to fix America. Okay. She's just speaking the truth about what needs to change because y'all continue to not listen. It's not like she hasn't been saying it. It's not like other people haven't been saying it. So, you know, shout out to Oprah. She's definitely in my top five. Oh, she um, is the shooting guard. We have a man. small forward and a point guard left. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just off the rip. Okay, so now I'm going to I'm gonna take it over to the radio side. And I'm so going me. to I'm going to bring on someone who a lot of people don't often think about and aren't necessarily focused on because she's been quiet and powerful for so many decades. Um, and she's done so many amazing things across radio. And that person is Helen R. Little. Yes. So Helen Little is coming on to my top five. She's been a producer and on-air personality. She has mentored so many uh, people within the business, whether they were promotions people or other on-air talent. Mm-hmm. Um, she's not necessarily a household name, but those are the kind of people that I love because they keep their longevity and they've got tremendous respect across the board. So Helen Little is coming in at number four. I mean, obviously unranked. I think she's but, a small fold. Okay. Because yep. her versatility. You yeah. Know, oh, yeah. She fits there. I know the last time I actually spoke to Helen, she was still in Philly, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Station there in Philly. So it's been a minute. And then, yeah, I think it was Philly, but it's been a long time. That's a great choice, though. And it's your point guard. I don't know. Is it your. I mean, you just talked about your girl a second ago, Jamel Hill. I don't know if she's the one. Or like, you know what? I was just going to say, if I needed to pick someone who is, you know, my contemporary in terms of us being part of the same generation, it's absolutely Jamel Hill. Like, we've communicated here and there on social. We have a lot of mutual friends. I love Jamel Hill. I want to, like, meet and build with her. I just think that she's brilliant. And um, what I love the most about Jamel is that she is so powerful intellectually. And she does not waver in her assertions. She understands the landscape. She understands the subject matter. She understands sports inside and out. And she's just fierce. She's a brilliant mind. And all the other stuff is gravy. All the other stuff is gravy. Like, she's gorgeous and all of that. But, like, she's my kind of woman and my kind of sports chick. Because she has the receipts. 
And <laughs> she's, you know, she's a master of conversation, but she also is like, so certain things are just not up for debate and here's why. Ra 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 ra, right? And you can be mad, but I haven't seen Jamel Hill be wrong yet. And I don't, you know, it's because she well, comes in prepared and she's ready and she knows that she's going up against a bunch of dudes who are used to failing up. So she's impeccable with hers. And um, yeah, Jamel Hill's gonna round out the, the top five. We're gonna keep it impeccable and come back for more with Tambisa and Shaka on the other side of this on the open run with Will Strickland. You're now listening to the sounds of the open run with Will Strickland, where the lecture is conducted from the mic into the speaker in conversation <laughs> with my sister Tembi Shaka. What are you clapping about? <laughs> I'm just, you know, I'm just bigging you up because, you know, legends only. That's kind of where uh, I'm at with it. It's like, you know, you're a legend in this thing, period. Whether we're talking about entertainment, talking about sports, talking about media. You know, across two continents, well, two countries, one continent, you know, across all of North America. So, you know, shout out to you. That's all I'm saying. I appreciate you and, and trying to build and, and, you know, steel sharpens steel at all times. But speaking of, you know, being able to build a career, first time NBA All-Star, Fred Van Vliet of the Toronto Raptors, whose whole tagline is better on yourself. Now, here's a guy, four years started at Wichita State led a team to the NCAA um, Elite Eight that was undefeated. But you know about his other teammates, more famous teammates. But he was the, the engine that was the one that drove that bus. Has a draft party in his hometown, Rockford, Illinois, because he didn't get invited to New York or Barclays or wherever they did the draft that year. Aww. I mean, he wasn't the guy he that wasn't was worried the about it. He was like, I'm throwing my own party. He thought he was going to get drafted, and he was kind of disappointed he didn't get drafted. Goes in, works hard, becomes like a guy that Kyle Lowry, Hall of Famer. He's going to be a Hall of Famer. That DeMar Darnell DeRozan, L.A., he's going to be a Hall of Famer, especially after this year, what he's doing this year in Chicago. They trusted him so much that he became a part of that team after they won a championship in the G League, at the Raptors 905, where he was a leader there, came up, became a leader on the Raptors. And he just basically bet on himself and worked and worked and worked till he got to the all-star status. Now, he's one of five people in the history of the sport to ever be named an all-star who was undrafted. And I'm talking about like, I don't really count the late Connie Hawkins and Moses Eugene Malone, bless the dead to both of them, because mm. they were in the ABA back in the 70s. Mm -hmm. Brad Miller, who's a two-time, you know, like, who the hell is Brad Miller? Exactly. John Starks, New York Knickerbocker, John Starks, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and Hall of Famer Ben Wallace from the Virginia Union. So Fred Van Vliet is on that list. He bet on himself. And when we're talking about betting on yourself, when I think about what you've done in media, working on the corporate side, but also saying, I have enough in me that I'm going to bet on myself and build these things and write my own books. And, and like, I need to create my own narrative. That when I leave this place, what inspired you to do what you're doing right now with all the media you're doing now? Why did you bet on yourself? Wow. Well, thank you. First of all, um, it's been a long journey, but mm. I think that 
what I value is, is the power to be able to operate on my own terms. Mm. And so M Shaka media gives me that opportunity, whether I'm doing voiceover work or whether I'm, you know, providing essays for anthologies. Um, I'm in another book called uncommon bonds, uh, women, race and friendship. That's um, out now came out, I believe in 2020. And, you know, I also, provide editorial services. So I continue to do campaign work. I continue to, you know, edit for authors. Um, I edited Brayley Evans' uh, latest book, The I Ams. Shout out to Brayley, who's an incredible actor and actually was in Just Right with Queen Latifah. Um, but you have to bet on yourself when you are a member of a segment that is continually oppressed, mm-hmm. right? I am black and I am female and I'm also a Muslim woman. Right. So when we talk about these things, it's typically in this in the space of how do you rise above? How do you reach beyond and how do you excel with all of these institutional barriers that are specifically set up to keep you from moving forward? You have to bet on yourself. Um, I was able to. uh become a part of the first Black Muslim screenwriters cohort uh, that was put together by the Muslim Public Affairs Council, shout out to Sister Sue Obeidi, and um, the Black House Foundation, which is Bricks and Diamond and Dolly Turner. You know, they put together um, a group of Black Muslim screenwriters from all around the world to elevate our creative work. And if I hadn't been on myself and gone to film school at the tender age of 40, (laughs) <laughs> which you know by the way was 10 years ago because i'm 50 okay but i'm aging in reverse so if i hadn't bet on myself and gone to film school at at that big age then i wouldn't have written my um feature screenplay islamic speed dating which i then was able to you know sort of rework a portion of into a pilot and get into that cohort program so you know I'm working actively to take my media presence to yet another level. Like I've done so much work in the spaces of music and voiceover and within literature. And now the next level for me is to get my movie made, to get, you know, my film to go to series. Mm -hmm. And, you know, everyone at any point is always trying to level up, you know, just like the gentleman that you're talking about. It's like, you have to keep pushing, keep being a leader, but you also need help. Like right now, I'm actively looking for a screenwriting agent. And part of the reason that I'm not on more of Hollywood's radar is because I'm unrepresented in that space. I have Mm -hmm. a literary agent. I have a voiceover agent. But I don't have a screenwriting agent. And so I continue to write, build a portfolio, you know, um, expand my presence, continue to be a part of great projects. And eventually, you know, it'll be like, Here's what I have to offer and I will get signed yet again. But again, you need a support team to be your best self as talent. And um, the only way to do that is to keep betting on yourself. You know, however long it's taking, it's all on God's time. And the timing ends up being right, even if it's not the way you thought it would look or the way you wanted it to go. Right. So Mm. in the same way that, you know, this brother is finally getting his due. Well, you talked about needing help. You talked about needing a team. Congratulations yeah. to Fred and his fiance because he put a ring on it. Not wow. a championship ring won in 2019 over the Golden State Warriors. He put a real ring on it. 
she, she was there when he was broke. <laughs> she was there when he was hurt. She was there when he was making 30 G's to play in the G League, trying to figure out if he's going to play basketball for a living or get a okay, regular but how job. long did it take? Can we get to that? Well, it took him. No, how long did it take him to put a ring on it? Like, why are you unsure, bro? Why did it take so long? I don't know. Look, you, you're asking wrong These guy. are the questions. <laughs> These are the questions that black women want the answers to. It's like, why did it take you so long? Uh, you know what? what? So, so we're going to play hypotheticals right now. Can we play their roles? All right, sure. Okay. So ask me that question. I, I get down on bended knee, and I'm handing you this ring. No, it's not for her to ask. Right now, I'm, sure I'm, I'm sure her parents are like, "Yeah, well, what took you so long?" And maybe she's asking it to herself. But really, it should be. It's a question for him to ask himself. Why did maybe, it take me so long when she gave me no indication that I shouldn't have done it? Hella before now. You know, just, the, I, I'm not going to speak for all black sense. males. I'm not going to speak for all black. Well, let's males not generalize. We're talking about one, you know, two people, one couple. So it's just a question on. that I have. I don't know them. I'm not in their I, business like that. But let's go on conjecture. Been there since he was broke, and you just ran down all this stuff that he's done and been through. He mm. bet on himself, but he didn't bet on her with him until when? Like, come on. Mm. I mean, I, it's a. I, I can say it's a fair statement to make. An, I can also say that in him betting on himself, he couldn't do that without her support and without her hello. being there. And let's also note that. Her being alongside him and and being a rock within that relationship creates the conditions and the environment within which he is able to then be great. No doubt. So, no doubt. so I, you know, the timing you talked about it's in on God's time. It happened on God's time. I'll, I'll answer that for Fred in that way. Yeah, yeah, that's a good <laughs> save. Because <laughs> look, I'm trying to help the girl out. She, and she ain't have to wait, but she did. She did. She did. So she shout out to her. Yeah, no doubt. That's what I'm saying. Like he said, look, let me make this official tissue right now. And, and, and look, I say this to say that every every woman's goal is not to be married, right? right. Not every woman is like, oh, I need to be a mother and have children, right? Mm -hmm. And again, we should normalize whatever the family structures are, the needs, the desires of you know women in relationships. And not judge them for, you know, who they are in terms of their identity, in terms of their sexual orientation or their, you know, sexual behavior, right? Like, no judgment, or, right? Or, or our conditioning about what the family structure should look like. Right. 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 We've been conditioned to believe that a family is, this nuclear family is mother, father, son, daughter. Like, right. sometimes, All of that. Hey, sometimes your skin ain't your kin or you have blood somewhere else when somebody else who believes in you. And at the end of the day, you just really have to say, this is my family. It looks like this, and it's my family. It doesn't have to look like yours. It's still my family. Or some families are blended, or some families have the parents and they have the same gender. Or, mm -hmm. you know, some families have, you know, surrogate pregnancies right. or, you know, however. But still like, family. Yeah. And so I'm not, I'm not saying this to say that we all are out here waiting for rings to be put on us. Because I think that what what people are interested in is being loved, known, and understood, right, and and respected in their relationships. But she clearly has done all the things that a wife would do without mm -hmm. even being a fiance. And, I believe. And I just want to say, 
Don't waste your pretty. If it's not going the way you think it should be going, don't feel compelled to stay either, right? No doubt. And I think to, to say this, I actually believe like be, before the pop and circumstance of a marriage or wedding, whatever the case might be, you're already married to that person. You're married to them in spirit and thought and mind and emotion, everything. So the rest of it is just for the state to recognize it. Outside of that, like really? That's, well, that's, yes and no, because marriage is an institution and it is a construct that provides certain rights, privileges and benefits. And, and by leaving women unmarried, they are outside of those parameters. And then there's a whole socioeconomic and political context within which they have to operate. So let's be clear that it's not just a piece of paper for recognition. No, no. It's got all these other things around it. And you can tell by how hard it is to get divorced. Right. And that's what I'm saying. Like, I understand that is, you know, you're actually married to that person before you do all of that. Yeah. Right. And that's a function. And that's of the state. all I'm saying is it makes the case for not waiting. There it is. Well, we're not going to wait any longer because we're, <laughs> you know, we, we talked about, you know, a, a birthday partner of yours. And we got a couple of friends who are birthday partners of yours. Yes. Right? Shout out to Master Ace. To Duvall Clear. Z. Yep. You said, Oh my my youngin', <laughs> you know, yeah. my man, you you guys are all, he, for years he go, Gaga, guess what? I said, what, what, baby? He goes, Jay-Z has my birthday. I'm like, I know, baby. I know. Mm -hmm. I know. There so, you go. I love that. You got day, but, you and know. And you guys talked about us being birthday twins, so it's only right that we bring it up here. Shout out to Ace. Without and, question. And uh, one love to Lachey. Mm -hmm. Oh, is Lachey's birthday is that same day? No, but that's. Ace's wife. Oh, We're talking yeah, about yeah. marriage, all of that. You know what I'm saying? No doubt. You can't you can't but, talk about one without the other? Well, I mean, you can, but you kind of have to like give it up to Lachey because it's the same situation. Like she is a pillar, a foundation, you know, and an artist in her own right. So, well, then rings and things we sing about, bring them out. Yep, yep. And when, also doing her thing in media with her own podcast. So, shout out to the to the Lachey show. Down. So All-Star Weekend is fastly, as a matter of fact, it's this upcoming weekend. But at mid-season, we want to give out some awards. Like we're okay. talking about giving out rings, we want to give out some awards. And I, I know how much you've been following these guys and knowing what's going on, but I'm going to walk you through it and we'll talk about them real quick. So I'm going to start off with most improved player in the league. So there are a couple of guys I'll put on the list. I don't know how familiar you are with Desmond Bain. From the Memphis Grizzlies, guy who played at TCU, um, one of the best three-point shooters in the league. He's a dog playing next to a real dog. And Tamisius Jamel Morant, you must trust. John Morant is the truth. Okay. Mm -hmm. When Youngin says, "Hey, we run up in chimneys, we ain't dodging no smoke," I'm like, "Those are bars." <laughs> That's how he's living. I love that. So he's one of those guys in most improved. We're talking about a guy like um, Miles Bridges. The Charlotte Hornets, who has shown that he's ready for the, that stage, right? And in Oakland, well, I guess they're not in Oakland anymore. Um, yeah, Georgia. that's a whole Georgia. other conversation. But yes, mm -hmm. the Golden State, right? Mm -hmm. So you're not with a wine and cheese crowd, apparently. No, no, no. I, I, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm told. I'm, I listen. I'm at home wherever I am. Wherever I am, yeah. I belong. But I definitely feel a way about about the Warriors leaving Oakland, you know? So, okay. 
So between Jordan Poole, Desmond Bain, and Miles Bridges right now, if you had to give that award, I, I don't know how much you know about them. Maybe I should just give the award. You should give all the, these are all your awards. You give them. So I'll, I'll tell you this much about <laughs> these guys. Right now, I would give that award from the most improved standpoint to Desmond Bain, who has become a bona fide number two or number three, depending upon the night in Memphis for that team. They are way ahead of schedule because of a guy in their point guard who said, let's rock, let's go. Mm-hmm. We don't have to wait. Like you talked about putting that ring on, we don't have to wait. Let's go. And they're a real yeah. force in, in that conversation. So I'm going to give my midseason award to Desmond Bain from the Memphis Grizzlies for the most improved player in the league. At the Rookie of the Year, you know, I, I'm going to leave Rookie of the Year for a second. Sixth man of the year is between Tyler Hero of the Miami Heat, who was leading all year, Kelly Oubre Jr. from the Charlotte Hornets, who's going to get canceled out by Montrez Harrell, who just traded there from Washington. But the guy I want to give love to on Valentine's Day is Kevin Wesley Love in the Cleveland Cavaliers. Now, he's one of he could have left when uh, whenever the guy and I can't say his name in the podcast because guys get too emotional about it. The guy I'm talking about okay. is the leading scorer in NBA history right That's now. Right. Mm-hmm. The hashtag he who shan't be named right. in Los Angeles. <laughs> That's what I call him on the show. That's his hashtag. He who shan't be named. When he leaves a team, whether it's Miami, where he left Cleveland, the team just goes down. But Kevin Love didn't opt out. He didn't, they wanted to buy him out of this contract. He said, no, I'm going to stay here. And now he's found a role that he's comfortable in in his 30s. And his, you talk about the tender age of 40 going into the film school. Mm-hmm. He's like, I'm in with these new guys. I'm loving the experience. I'm the leader. I don't have to be the star on the team. But I'm going to star in my role. And he bet on himself. Bet on himself. And you know what? Even though Tyler Hero is leading for everyone else, I'm going to pick Kevin Love, especially today on Valentine's Day. So Kevin Love is my sixth man of the year right now, especially with the way the Cleveland Cavaliers are playing in the East. Nobody expected this, the way they run their lineup and everything. They run a bunch of bigs on the front line. They have like three seven-footers in the front line. This is not the 80s. Everything was supposed to go back to, or, you know, we're in small ball era now. You know about the death lineup with uh, Golden State years ago. Now they have this lineup that is totally counter to what everybody's running now in the NBA, and Kevin Love is a part of that. So I'm going to give it up to Kevin Love. Okay. Okay. Rookie of the year, the motorcade, Kate Cunningham from Detroit. One of the worst teams in the league, but he's nice with it. We got a guy in Scotty Barnes. Okay. Can, who, we, can we just go back and just say that, wow, Detroit is one of the worst teams in the league right now? Yeah, we can. As a Lakers fan that survived the Pistons dynasty, (laughs) I'm excited to hear that. All right. All right, okay. Okay, now we're done. Moving on. on. Ever. You can't live down 2004, ever. No, not ever. Ever. Okay, and you know. Or or the Chicago dynasty. Like, we survived that too. Like, yo. Chicago never got a chance to play against the Showtime Lakers. I don't count the win in 91. I don't count HIV magic. Mm, He's the GOAT. He's the GOAT. The reason I call him the GOAT, one, I don't rank guys who are are still playing, right? Right. And the fact that it's not about that you fought, because I I respect the fact that a lot of people want to call Michael Jordan their GOAT. I respect that he fought. He won his championships when he won them. The most watered-down period in NBA history, too. We expand six times in eight years. Okay, 
but it's also who you fought that matters to me. Mm-hmm. So if, I, if I'm fighting you, if we're boxing and you beat me and you're the best and I'm the best and we want to find out, I respect the fact you beat me. So he lost to all-time teams like the the 82-83 Sixers with Moses Malone and Dr. Mm. J and all those guys, four Hall of Famers. He lost to Isaiah, Joe Dumars. Yep. I mean, those guys, he lost to those guys. He lost to Boston. And they were, I mean, mean. The thorn thorn in Los Angeles aside. The finals had 11 Hall of Famers playing that in that series. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, who you fought, or that you fought, but who you fought as well. Mm -hmm. Because, because, you know, you're only as strong as the field, right? And And if you are... If you are the top in a weak field, it doesn't really say a whole lot. I said this to someone about having a fight with somebody who's not going to fight back. Oh, you won. Yeah, I mean, really if Again, you, if all you're doing is mushing them in the forehead, then we don't. What are we talking about? Well, I mean, that's maybe I'm a. <laughs> I hate to use the term hater, but it is what it is. Um, but yeah, well, I think that you. I think that you level um, warranted critique, and that's the difference. We're not talking about hate. Because that's just rooted in emotion and not always based in fact. Okay, that's opinion based. Mm. So, no, I just gave it up for the fact that like Magic beat and lost to some of the greatest teams of all time, and the best team that Jordan ever beat in the finals was the '98 Utah Jazz. Because every other team he played against had one Hall of Famer on it. Well, one. Yep. One. And I'm not, again, 91, that was in the Showtime Lakers. You can attest to this as a Laker fan. You know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To go back to Detroit and the rookie of the year, Cade Cunningham, who is the number one pick of the draft. A lot of people thought he was going to be the guy. Started off slow, having a better season. But because he's not winning, I don't know if that will help him. And in Toronto, Scotty Barnes, a guy that a lot of people are like, who is this? We wanted Jalen Suggs, who's playing in Orlando right now. But Scotty Barnes from Florida State, is in that mix. He could be the rookie of the year right now, especially if the Raptors continue. They're on an eight game. I like to call it when they're winning multiple games, it's a losing strike. So they're on an eight game losing strike right now. Mm. And Evan Mobley, you know, the number four pick in the draft, who's playing quite well in Cleveland, playing multiple positions and is up for defensive player of the year. We'll talk about that in a second, but I'm going to pick right now at this point, Evan Mobley, to be Rookie of the Year in the National Basketball Association. Now, you talked about doing this voiceover work and all that stuff. How, what was that experience like for you? Uh, voicing for the WNBA mm-hmm. and New York Liberty. Mm-hmm. Oh, it was a dream come true. As, as a girl who grew up you know, loving basketball, I used to sneak into the Fabulous Forum as a kid because I lived not that far from there in Inglewood. Mm-hmm. So I would walk over there and sneak into the Forum and watch Michael Cooper, Rambis, Kareem, you know, Worthy, watch them all practice. Mm-hmm. So to be able to voice for a team for the New York Liberty's historic 20th season, that was huge. And and I loved it. I had so much fun being able to be the voice on all the commercials for their games for that season for MSG. Um, and that actually led to me being selected as the voice for the WNBA for their, you know, their new season campaign. After that, uh, again, just a huge, huge honor. And, you know, I have so much respect for those players because they are elite athletes and they're not treated the same. And I think that they're making strides within that, but there's a long way to go. And so just to be able to be 
affiliated with the WNBA and with the New York Liberty, like that was huge for me. You know, I was able to take my daughter to a game. They mm-hmm. shouted her out on the jumbotron. Word. She got to go to the, you know, to the floor, to the middle of the court and take pictures. She got to shoot hoops. Like, you know, for a five-year-old girl, like that was just like, you know, it was monumental for her. And I just, I love being able to, you know, create that opportunity for her. And that was because they created that opportunity for me by selecting me. So definitely a huge honor. Well, you definitely earned that. And, and we're going to see if one of these guys can earn the defensive player of the year on our midseason report uh, in conversation with Tambisa and Chaka here on the open run. With Will Strickland, I got you. Will Strickland. I need to do a drop for your podcast, speaking I, of the VO 100%, 100%. thing. That way, whenever, whenever it's not happening for you, you can just run that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll plug it in right away. But um, defensive player of the year, Draymond Jamal Green Sr. Mm-hmm. Giannis, Ugo, LaTerrence, I gave him that middle name. Atintacumpo. Mm-hmm. Rudy Gobert, I don't know his government. Oh, and Jerry Jackson Jr. I'm shocked. Research! I, I know. Where are the research people? Oh, it's just me. It's just oh. me. <laughs> and when I look at this, it's easy to pick somebody like Draymond. It's easy to pick Rudy Gobert. It's easy to pick Giannis, who's been stellar again this year. But I want to go off the board a little bit. I, th- I think I'm giving Memphis a lot of love. And Jerry Jackson Jr.'s mom, Terry, is the executive director of the WNBA. Awesome. So we're going to give it up for Jaron Jackson III, uh, Jaron Jackson Jr., I'm sorry, as Defensive Player of the Year right now, even though I think Evan Mobley's in that conversation as well when I'm talking about the Rookie of the Year. For Coach of the Year, I'm not even going to waste time. Go- I mean, I want to show some love to Billy Donovan in Chicago, to Taylor Jenkins in, in Memphis, to Monty Williams, whose team has the best record in the league right now in Phoenix. The coach of the year for me is J.D. Vickerstaff in Cleveland. No one looked at them as somebody who can compete in the East this year, and all of a sudden he has his team at that mark. J.D. Vickerstaff, whose dad coaching the NBA, Bernie, for years and years and years. Uh, J.D. Vickerstaff is my coach of the year and the MVP, the dark horse, Christopher Emmanuel Paul, HBCU champion, because he really champions that cause for sure. He's helped out a lot. The HBCU Classic this year at the All-Star Game is because of Chris Paul. Mm-hmm. Um, you have Giannis in that mix as the MVP. You also have Nikola Jermaine Jokic because most Slavic peoples don't have middle names, so I gave him one. <laughs> and Jermaine of all names, you know. No, it's J apostrophe M-A-Y-N-E. Uh, okay. Amen. Jermaine. <laughs> So Nicola Jermaine, who's the MVP, reigning defending MVP of the league. And last but not least, Joel Hans Embiid, the Colonel's son, who is playing like the MVP right now. I'm going to give it to Joel Embiid right now. But that will mark something that's really important. And I, I noticed this the other day. If he ends up being the MVP of the league, the past four MVPs have been a guy from Athens, Greece, who's of Nigerian descent, a guy who's the number 46 pick in the draft, a second-round pick, Nicola Jermaine, and Joel Embiid from Cameroon. The world is getting smaller with basketball, but the world got a whole lot brighter having my sister on, Tambisa Mshaka. So please let the people know where they can find you online, miss. <laughs> Thank you, Will. So I am Official Lip Game on Twitter and IG. I'm on Facebook uh, under my company, Mshaka Media, and Tembisa, middle initial S, Mshaka there. What's your middle name? 
my middle name is Shalewa. So I have a whole Zulu name because, you know, my parents, may they rest, were Pan-Africanists and did their research and did their homework. And they were like, your government name is not going to be a slave owner name. Right. So uh, Tembisa Shalewa Mshaka is my name. Love that. And I appreciate you so much. And we're going to see you soon on the other side. All right. Thank you. And uh, appreciate you for having me on. It's, it's always a pleasure. Much love. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. And with that said, it is now time for the news, views, and truths that you choose on the NBA and beyond. The University of Connecticut Lady Huskies suffered their first conference loss this past week since 2013. That's absurd. No Paige Beckers. AZ Fudd's there, though. But again, the world of women's basketball is growing beyond stores Connecticut. There are players all over the country, players playing for some of the greatest teams, and we're going to talk about some of these seeds right now. As a matter of fact, the University of South Carolina, Lady Gamecocks, number one seed in the tournament, number one seed in there. If we were seeding these brackets right now for the women's tournament, because that's what we're starting to get to right now, was going to make these seedings. In the South, it would be the University of South Carolina. In the West, Tara Vanderveer's Stanford Cardinal would reign supreme as the number one seed in that bracket. NC State, North Carolina State. I think they're going to go to the East. Because when the East is in the house, oh my God, danger. NC State, solid team. And rounding out the top four in the Midwest bracket for the NCAA tournament, University of Louisville Lady Cardinals. So we got a lot of Cardinals in there. Cardinals and Gamecock. These are birds, except for the Wolf Pack. Will they eat them up? We'll find out sooner than later. On the men's side, Auburn suffered its first loss of the season in conference to Arkansas. But this is one of those situations and with young teams, you find out a lot about how you can deal with your press clippings. That if they even have press clippings anymore, how do you, because I'm talking about newspapers and I'm old. So what is it when you read your tweets or whatever, maybe? Who knows? At any rate, you get too gassed up on where you are sitting in February when you want to be sitting at the top in April. These kinds of losses happen. In conference, Arkansas got them. Duke was bested by Virginia, making the Gonzaga Bulldogs the number one team in the land once again this week. Get well soon to 2021 NCAA champion, Jonathan Shamwa Chachua. I hope I'm saying his name properly. Who's out for the rest of the season with a knee injury. Now, Baylor counts a lot on their veterans, on the guys who've been there, who understand what it takes to win an NCAA championship. And he's a big part of their rebounding, what they do off the glass. 
playing physical inside. They're going to miss him in the tournament, but shouts out to him. But let's go to the seedings in the men's bracket. Gonzaga, number one, they're going to get out west for sure. Auburn's going to be in the south. Duke's going to take over the east. And in the Midwest, another team from Kentucky, the state of Kentucky. Let's go with the Kentucky Wildcats with John Calipari. I haven't said a whole lot about Calipari and his, his, his Wildcats this year, but I think they're going to make a little noise in the NCAA tournament. Shouts out to Amadou Fall, the commissioner of the Basketball Africa League, starting his second season in Dakar, Senegal, this March. 38 games to be played, two conferences, the Nile Conference and the Sahara Conference. I love that part of it. I'm looking forward to watching some of these games. You saw what Nigeria did to make the Olympics in 2021. I'm looking forward to seeing more teams from the continent, including my guy, Roy Bobby Rana's team from Egypt, make some moves in the BAL as well as on the international stage as a precursor to the 2024 Olympics in Paris. Some injuries to run down, and I think they're very significant for a team that started off very well. But what we say on the podcast from time to time, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. We want to finish strong. Bradley Beal will not be doing that for the rest of the season. As the Wizards, who start off so great, are moving pieces around. They just got in the, now I'm going to talk about this trade in a second. They made a big trade recently. Something that I guess wasn't working out for them. Actually, a couple of trades. But Bradley Beal out for the year with a broken left wrist. John Collins, another team trying to make a move in the East. The Atlanta Hawks, out indefinitely with a foot strain. Zach Levine, of the current number two seed in the East, the Chicago Bulls, may skip the All-Star game. Is he out in Los Angeles having his left knee examined? Take care of it now for the playoff start because you want to see how far the Chicago Bulls can go in restoring the luster to that franchise. The recently traded Norman Powell, who made a sparkling debut in L.A. with the Clippers, is out with a fracture in his left foot. I don't know when he's going to be coming back, but with these trades and with the specter of both Kawhi Anthony Leonard and Paul Anthony George not coming back this season, they were counting on the scoring prowess of Norman Powell. What are they going to do now? Luke, Luke, it is upon you. Use the force, Luke. Luke Kennard, you're going to be the focus. No, let me stop. Marcus Moore Sr. is a guy out there for them for now. But get well soon, Norman Powell. NBA champion Pat Connaughton broke his right hand trying to guard Chris Paul at the end of the rematch of the 2021 NBA Finals. We'll talk about that in a second. And with moving Dante DiVincenzo, which we'll get into in a second, the Bucks are buyers in a buyer's market right now to find pieces to complete their roster and make another push toward another championship. But now that we're talking about the trade deadline, Connaughton, a former Blazer himself, there's a fire sale going on in Portland. And this thing is going to test whether they're willing to build around an over 30-year-old Damian Lillard and test his heart and loyalty to that franchise. He wants to talk about that all the time. I don't see these moves as improving the team, but hey, it is what it is. C.J. McCollum is running buddy, now a New Orleans Pelican. Look at that Pelican fly. Traded for Josh Hart, the former National Player of the Year from Villanova. Bounced around a couple of times for the Lakers to New Orleans and now a piece there in Portland. Another piece coming over as a result of the fire sale is Joe Ingles. I talked about Joe possibly not seeing the ending of what happens in Utah as a part of that team, and he will not. He's been traded to the Portland Trailblazers for Nikhil Alexander-Walker, the cousin of Shea Gilchrist Alexander. I don't know if Utah needs another gunner next to Jordan Clarkson, who is having a down year. The reigning sixth man of the year is having a down year shooting-wise, but 
Utah Jazz is still in that mix. So any scoring power off that bench is, I guess, an added value to that team. So so be it. Good luck with Nikhil Alexander-Walker in Utah. The Indiana Pacers were big movers in this trade deadline as well, moving some really big pieces and getting some things in return. First and foremost, their first trade with the Cleveland Cavaliers, right in the same division. Used to be a no-no to do that back in the day. Not so much today. But Ricky Rubio, who is on the injured reserve list right now, was a mentor to Darius Garland and Colin Sexton in Cleveland, has moved on to Indiana. I don't know if they're going to buy him out because they like that young core they have there. But Karis LeVert went over right away to Cleveland, giving them some scoring punch. And the first game he played, if I'm not mistaken, was against his former mates. He made it personal in the fourth quarter to help lead his Cleveland Cavaliers to a win over the Indiana Pacers. Sabas 2.0, Demonis Sabonis, the biggest piece in that. A veritable triple-double at the center position in the East, much like Nikola Jermaine Jokic in the West, was moved to the hinterlands of Sacramento. Tyrese Halliburton, I really thought they were going to build around him, but I guess they believe more in what, what they can do with De'Aaron Fox and with off-night Davion Mitchell in the backcourt. They got a great piece in Demonis Sabonis and having to give up Tyrese Halliburton and Buddy Heald. Rick Carlisle should be happy that we will have these pieces to work with for the next couple of years. I'll talk a little bit about Bradley Beal and how the matching of Spencer Dinwiddie, who was considered one of the top six men, guys off the bench that can lead a team, didn't do so well when he got the starting job and, and was a part of a rebuilding situation in Washington. They moved on from him and traded for the unicorn. Not only unicorn because... He's a unique player, but now they're saying because he's not available all the time, he's a unicorn in, I have to give him a middle name eventually, Chris Stapps, he already has a nickname with me, but Chris Stapps 3-6 Latvia Porzingis is now a Washington Wizard. I thought that they would have both he and Davis Bertans on the team, but Davis Bertans is a part of that trade. I know how that's going to work out in Dallas, but we'll see. In a four-team trade between the Clippers, the Bucks, the Kings, and the Pistons, Sergei Ibaka, Serge Ibaka, Mufuzi Chef, moving on to help that front line in Milwaukee. They are all in. They're putting their chips in the middle of the table to try and get a second one and convince Giannis that this is where he has to stay for the rest of his career. So Serge Ibaka, a guy who was a champion himself, with Brooke Lopez still being out, I think it's a good pickup for them. Marvin Bagley. Free Marvin Bagley. Gets to go to Detroit, playing that front line with Isaiah Stewart and with Sadiq Bey and the motorcade, Kate Cunningham. I like what Troy Weaver and Dwayne Casey are doing there. I know they're not winning right now. It feels a lot like what has happened in Memphis and how they grew that program. I think they're going to do the same in Detroit. Look out for them the next couple of years. I can see that happening. So if I want to offer something on Valentine's Day, some patience to Tom Gorris, let Troy Weaver and Dwayne Casey do their job in the Motor City. The Big Ragu, Dante DiVincenzo. T. Michael Jordan of Delaware. White Dante. Now with the Sacramento Kings. Feels like that's home for him. He was a part of that initial trade that was going to happen for Bogdan, Bogdan, Bogdanovich. The NBA canceled because it was looked at as tampering the way they, the trade went down. So DiVincenzo finally feels like he's at home. That's where he wants to play. He wasn't really playing a whole lot. And Milwaukee, especially with Pat Connaughton taking over that spot. But it is what it is. And I guess I have to talk about Rodney Hood and Simi Ojale going on to the Clippers. I don't know if they're going to get bought out beyond the 
going to get bought out or not, or if they need to keep those guys because of the injuries to Leonard, to George, and to Norman Powell now. In a smaller trade, Goran Dragic, who was never going to play really in Toronto, didn't want to be in Toronto. They traded him to San Antonio for Thaddeus Young. I can't remember the last time I said that Young's name in a game. I don't even remember what jersey number he wore in San Antonio for his brief time there. I think it was number 30. But you get a veteran in the locker room that helps a veteran-laden team like the Toronto Raptors. Will they keep him? I don't know. But the big trade, the trade deadline, one that a lot of people didn't think was going to happen. James Edward Harden Jr. traded for Benjamin David Simmons. Now, in that trade, along with Harden leaving the Nets for Philadelphia, Paul Melsat went with him, multiple-time All-Star. And also, on the other side, with Ben Simmons leaving Philadelphia, they had to give up Seth Curry and Andre Drummond, who are also part of that trade. I love that Joel Embiid, in the first press conference after Ben Simmons was traded, talked about, you know, I, I'm glad I don't have to talk about, in quotes, that subject anymore. I'm not here to babysit. We know he wasn't talking about Seth Curry. His father-in-law was the coach of the team. He wasn't talking about him. I'm pretty sure he wasn't talking about Andre Drummond. We know who he's talking about. And Steve Nash, on getting Ben Simmons, was right away reinforcing those behaviors that Ben Simmons has. Hey, he doesn't have to be able to shoot. He's been an all-star without being able to shoot. He needs to learn how to shoot. He needs to be a, a force when the game slows down. It's not fast-breaking and everything else. He needs to be an asset, not a liability on the court. Speaking of liabilities, the 11-game winning strike, the Nets are on. Maybe that comes to an end as New York Governor Kathy Hochul, I hope I'm saying her name right, lifted the masking mandate statewide this past Wednesday. So does Kyrie get to play at home now? And shout out to Kevin Wayne Durant. I saw a tweet recently that said, this guy went from the Splash Brothers to the Unreliable Brothers. I think he's talking about Kyrie Andrew Irving and James Harden. On paper, they look like world beaters. I don't know if they're going to win a championship this year, and the window is closing. But those guys are all-stars, all-star level players. And then this year's all-star games team selection, which they do on Inside the NBA with Ernie, Chuck, Shaq, and Kenny, Team He Who Shan't Be Named, and Team KD had to choose up. And so I'm going to name some of those guys that were playing, including the replacement players, because in the West, DeJounte Murray is taking over for the injured Draymond Green. In the East, LaMelo LaFrog's ball is replacing Kevin Durant. So, we already know the starters in the East. DeMar Darnell DeRozan, Rayford Trey Young the third, Kevin Wayne Durant, Giannis Ugo, LaTerrence Tintacumpo, and Joel Hansenbead. In the East, in the West, Wardell Stephen Curry the second, Demetrius Jamel Morant, he who shan't be named, Andrew Christian Wiggins, and Nikola Jermaine Jokic. Those are the starters. Don't have to pick them, but you have to pick from the reserves. And in the East, the reserves are Zach Levine, Jimmy Butler, Chris Middleton, Jason Tatum, Darius Garland, Fred Van Vliet, and LaMelo Ball. In the West, well, I left off one on purpose. In the West, Devin Booker, Christopher Emmanuel Paul, I should have said Armani for Devin Booker's middle name, Draymond Green, Carl Anthony Towns, Luca Lamar Doncic. I don't know what Donovan Mitchell's middle name is, and nor did I know DeJounte Murray's. I get to get on the case. I don't say their names a lot. But the last two picks came down to Rigo Bear and James Harden. And the fact that he who shan't be named had the penultimate pick, he's going to put his friend Kevin Durant in a precarious situation. And so he chose Rudy Gobert on purpose, which is funny. 
And of course, Kevin Durant had to choose a guy. And James Harden, and he's like, you know, we're happy with what we got in the trade. And we chose him. James Harden might not even play in the All-Star game. He's still sitting out with an injured hamstring. I'm sure he'll be there to show up for the check, however. I just found that funny how they dealt with it. But it is what it is. Congratulations to all those guys. I'm looking forward to seeing what you do at the NBA All-Star Weekend, one of my favorite times of the year. Shouts out to the Players of the Week this week, Brandon Ingram of the New Orleans Pelicans. I'm sure he's happy to see Christian James McCollum show up in his lineup and Pascal Siakam helping the team with an, with an eight-game losing strike on this record right now, moving up in the East, doing their thing. Some milestones to consider. Shouts out to Anthony Edwards the fourth fastest player in NBA history to reach 2,500 points. Of course, the first one is the hashtag, he who shan't be named, Kevin Durant and Devin Booker. And speaking of the hashtag, as I said earlier, the all-time leading scorer in combined points, playoffs and regular season in NBA history is one hashtag, he who shan't be named. Smile like you do when you know something hurts, but you have to smile anyway. That's probably how you feel right now about that. It is what it is. The game of the week was a finals rematch between the Phoenix Suns and the world champion, Milwaukee Bucks. The Phoenix Suns defeated the Bucks in whatever they call that arena today. Talking stick, it's no longer that. It's something crypto or some sort of tech company. I know that for sure. Anyway, the additions of JaVale and Lindy McGee and the great Bed, Bath, and Bismack Biombo. Great story on him and his relationship with his father and the undefeated this week, actually today. Go ahead and check that out. But having more size, which again, seems antithetical to how the league has gone to positionless basketball, smaller players in positions they wouldn't normally play. But Giannis, Brooke Lopez, Bobby Portis made it important for a team like Phoenix who had injuries down the stretch last year. No Frank Kaminsky, not that he could have stopped Giannis or Brooke Lopez or anyone like that. No Dario Saric. Lose those guys is just young. DeAndre Ayton. And this year they bolstered that with those two guys. And it shows. Bismack Biombo loves playing with Chris Paul. Chris Paul says, anybody who sets good screens for me, they're going to get the rock. And he's always had an issue with his hands and catching the ball. Except when he was in Toronto. And it seems as now a quality contributor to the Phoenix Suns, the team with the best record in the National Basketball Association. And since we're here in Phoenix, we may as well keep it going. The standings really haven't changed that much. Our power 10 has not changed that much. At number one, the Phoenix Suns. At two, the Golden State Warriors. Big win, Clay Alexander Thompson. Looking like the Clay of old, not old Clay. In a game against the Lakers earlier this week, dropping bombs in the fourth quarter when they counted most, and when they needed him the most. At three, the Memphis Grizzlies. I'm high on this team. I can't help it. I'm not Kendrick Perkins, but I am very high on this team. I'm just a big fan of John Morant. I really am. Always have been since I first saw him at Murray State. So at number four, the Miami Heat, quietly on a five-game losing strike themselves at the top of the Eastern Conference doing their thing. At number six, the Milwaukee Bucks. They're getting healthy. Giannis is playing at an MVP level again. He's 27 years old. That means he's just coming into his physical prime. It's scary what could happen moving forward. He could be in that conversation. I don't want to do too much. But the championship, almost every individual accolade you can receive in the NBA, and he has them before he was 27 years old. Yeah. Okay, a couple of MVPs. 
You could start creeping into that conversation. You never know. At seven, the Cleveland Cavaliers, big fan of what they're doing there. At seven, the Cleveland Cavaliers. At eight, the Philadelphia 76ers. New trades, new faces, and new places. Joel Embiid, the first center with a 40-point, 10-rebound, 10-assist, triple-double in franchise history since some dude named Wilton Norman Chamberlain did it a couple times back in the 60s. He's playing like that right now. It's amazing to watch. And he has been empowered by knowing that it is finally, quote-unquote, his team. There's been a guy who's like really into the whole his team, my team, because we know that Josh Harris owns that team. And number nine, the Utah Jazz. Looking very good since Donovan Mitchell's come back. With new additions in their lineup. We'll see how they work those in. Quinn Snyder doing his thing on the sideline. Looking like a coked out junk bonds trader. And at 10, the now unicornless Dallas Mavericks. Led by Luka Lamar Doncic. And the newly minted Dorian Finney-Smith. I'm going to give it up to Dorian Finney-Smith. Talk about his mother working in fast food. And now she can kick up her feet. He has a very Red Van Vliet type story as, as well. I doubt he'll ever make an all-star team. But again, people doubted Fred Van Vliet because he bet on himself. And before we get out of here, as it is Valentine's Day, I love basketball. I love the life that I live. I love the opportunities each and every day to grow this life and grow this love organically as best I possibly can. But here's the funny thing about love is that you don't choose it. It chooses you. Basketball found me when I was a baseball guy, when I was a football guy, little guy, a wee lad. And now I'm married to the game. And I'm damn sure not going to ever divorce it. And hopefully you don't divorce me. I signed the prenup. So let's do it once again next week. So until then, do remember, do what's popular with the population. Make sure you don't get beat off the dribble. And continue listening to The Open Run with Will Strickland. Rich kid, my measel mezan. Word up. Appreciate you, brother. Young bro doing your thing. Do it once again. <laughs>